Blank. Dayspring. Who do we have on the podcast today? We have the legendary writer of Uncanny and Adjectiveless X-Men and Exiles and so much more that we don't even get into, Mr. Chuck Austin. It is like two hours worth of an interview. And we, like if we, folks at home, if we sound a little tired, it's because we have (laughs) been on Zoom for two hours dissecting every single panel of Chuck Austin's time on the xbox and we didn't even get everything like you said we didn't even get everything we didn't even get to everything and when we say that we dived into every single panel i i day spring you specifically dived into every single panel teeny teeny tiny ones that nobody else remembers okay no wait bitch hang on one second because there's a teeny little panel of iceman in his room looking at a photo of nurse annie and him at pilar's and havoc's wedding which we know how that ends up and also of him and pilar's so and that scene always stuck in my head and i just i need to ask him but of course because if anyone would ask us what did we do this morning i'd be like bitch i don't remember so we're asking chuck what tell us about this teeny little panel or i'm asking chuck about this teeny little panel that happened 20 years ago of course he doesn't remember but he was able to give a good answer for why he would write something like that yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i i can't imagine how difficult it is for the people that we interview to tolerate our questions or to give us like the well thought out answers that 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 we want because we're asking about things that happened months years decades ago i mean we're we're we we, we go there this is it would powers be like, of where we be go like, there it would be like me asking you right now Tell me about a paper you wrote your freshman year of college, and you would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely could not happen. It's weird. I probably could tell you more about like a paper I wrote in high school, but college? No, no, I don't know. So don't know. He, he was on Uncanny X-Men. Hang on, I, I wrote like really quick notes about it. He was on Uncanny X-Men started in 410 after Joe Casey, which we cover in there, and then ended at 443. He worked with Salvador La Roca, Phil Tan, and Kia Ashamia, that, that very manga anime look yeah. for some issues. But what was interesting, this is something that we talked about, and I think was one of my favorite questions that, that you tackled, was he started off during the Morrison era yeah. and then went all the way through to the Reloaded Weedon. I mean, that yeah. is a substantial time in the X-Books. It is a, a, a really different time in the X books because the X Men were were had gained like a new notoriety because of 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 the movies. So so there were a lot of eyes on on the X books, and they were really trying like a lot of new and different things in each book. Um, you know, they are all still called X Men. You know, we didn't have X Force, X Caliber, X Factor, blah blah blah. It was just all variations on 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 X Men. Um, and, and they all had their own special thing going. It was a really fun and different time in the X books. And of course it's when you and I became friends. Oh, I know. I know. Well, that's why, like, I think that era of X books is always going to resonate hard with me because, you know, we were reading these, these books now as adults, we were coming back to, I I was coming back to the books. I was coming back to them as well. I came back during Murder at the Mansion when Morrison, when they wrote that, that epic, epic three-parter. And I remember seeing, I think Angel, his version of Angel, Chuck Austin's version of Angel is in the background when Bishop is holding the bullet. And then I went to, you know, what was going on in Uncanny and everything. So it's always, 
I'm always going to think of going on to the Foosh, talking to someone called Ultimate Phoenix. I don't know her. You, uh, uh, Jean Grey with the goatee. You keep saying it was supposed to be a reference to 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 Rachel in the Ultimate Verse, but it was not because you're Jean not. Grey with the it goatee. It was Jean. It you was were, Jean. But okay, wait. Before we get into the interview, because we can ramble about the interview, I I kind of want to want to turn the tables and interview <gasps> you really i know look at that oh no well you know we, we 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 had our falling out and you've come back into the pox familia and you've had so many exciting things going on and i'm like so proud of you and i w- did something happen recently did you get a new job are you like officially in the i don't know business oh my god <laughs> Oh my God. Well, uh, yes, uh, I did. I have started a new job. Um, I'm working for uh, the largest auction house in the United States, uh, which is Heritage Auctions. And um, to your point, I am somewhat in I'm industry adjacent. I'm not writing or drawing comic books, but I am a comic book professional. Um, I am a comic book and comic art cataloger. Uh, which is is kind of it, it's a little hard to describe, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll do the best. Um, so essentially, uh, over the last couple of years, the demand for rare uh, or certified comic books from like CGC um, and original comic art has has sort of skyrocketed, and 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 Heritage has sort of been at the front uh of that surge uh and demand um last year i think we uh they told me they did or we i work there hello uh did 181 million dollars just in comic book auctions which was more than double the amount the year before which was already a record breaker so people were home cleaning out their closets sending the stuff to heritage selling it to people like me sitting around with nothing to do during a pandemic um, but so far as like, you know, what, what, what my job is essentially, um, there's a whole department of comic book nerds doing, um, and a, a bunch of different tasks to prepare for the auction. And I'm just going to tell you kind of how it all works and, and how I fit into it. Um, so essentially we have the consignment directors who work with the clients to bring in the comics, the comic art, sometimes toys and other fun stuff. Then we have um, an in-house team of comic graders who evaluate the goods, arrange things in group lots, and then send like the best of it to CGC to certify as its own lot. And then me, how I fit into all of this, which was of course the the, the question that I'm now giving the world's longest answer to. I'm enjoying um, it. You know, I'm enjoying it. No, so so then me and the rest of the catalogers uh, then get a chance to to examine things. Um, so that we can enter all the tech information, you know, how big something is, how old it is, who published it, manufactured it. Um, we determine the value of it using the Overstreet price guide. Um, and then I also get to um, write a description of what's being offered and why it's the coolest thing in the world. So, um, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, essentially, I'm being paid to research and write about comic books. Woo! So it is absolutely uh, a dream come true. I've really been um, enjoying the work. I've really been enjoying the people that I work with. Um, Now, I do have to clarify now that I am um, something resembling a comic book professional who also 
has the side gig speaking about comic books in the industry for fun. Um, I have to add my little disclaimer that everything oh, I you're say- Oh, you're that person now. Everything I say is my own opinion and not the opinion of Heritage Auctions. Fair enough. Fair enough. We know you're only speaking on behalf of yourself. So um, you know what I just realized also, well, I, I kind of knew this already. We're also in like the same industry. Yeah, I was going to say. With auctions. That, that, that's it. Like you can't We both get rid work of in auctions. You can't get rid of me. I'm So I'm at the tail end of that spectrum. I'm the auctioneer who inherits what you write. And then yeah. I sort of put my own spin on it when I'm on stage and I call out the numbers and then I sell it for hopefully triple its worth. Yeah, which does happen uh, quite regularly. I think we just sold um a, the the first issue of of Luke Cage Power Man for like I want to say like 50 times what the price guide value is it was that. absolutely insane so hats off to you and fellow auctioneers for really getting that adrenaline going I I actually went to my first uh live auction at Heritage live comic book auction at Heritage last week and when I tell you the energy in there was nuts was nuts and like all that comes comes down to the person with the microphone comes down to you so like i have a newfound respect for 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 what you do do you remember during the pandemic when we were fighting every day and i was going crazy is because it is an adrenaline going on stage and doing an auction and pre-pandemic i was doing one like every other night i mean the bookings were insane so to all of a sudden literally overnight have that taken away it's it is it, it is like losing that drug, but I'm so glad you're part of the auction scene, especially with comic books. You know, at, at auctioneering college, you know, the highest grossing industry for auctions is is cars, which I, I'm not a car hmm. auctioneer. They they are very different. But hearing those numbers for for comic, you know, and comic book memorabilia auctions, that's insane. That is very, very lucrative. And they are lucky to have you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I really, like I said, I really enjoy doing it. And, and I hope that, you know, I have a, a long, happy career with Heritage. Um, but I will say the biggest challenge is, of course, having all of these amazing things come across my desk. And I want to, to, to bid, you know, on, on, on all of them. But uh, most things I could never, ever, ever dream of affording. But and you know, because I'm such an idiot, I was like, oh, do you get an employee discount? Like, like you would get an employee no. discount on a lot that's being bid. Like, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. It's all it's all consignment. So, you know, there's 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 no discount uh, offered to employees, unfortunately. So I have only been able to make one splurge uh, in, in, in my month there. But I, I do expect that there will be some more art joining this wall behind me that you listeners can't see that I'm gesturing too, too wildly. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving it. Okay. Well, listen, we can, we can keep on rambling as people know for hours, but we've already rambled for two hours <laughs> and folks at home are about to embark on a very, very deep dive of Chuck Austin's time on Kenny X-Men and adjectiveless X-Men. Uh, let's just plug our socials right now. I'm at power of X-Men. I'm at Flinkman and I'm not doing anything too exciting on there. But, you know, if a cool comment comes across my desk, I'll be sure and share it when I can. All right, guys, enjoy this interview with Chuck Austin. 
Today, we have on legendary Uncanny X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men writer, Mr. Chuck Austin. Hello, Chuck. How's it going, man? It's good. It's good. Um, Flink, day, spring. It's very nice to meet both of you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. No, thank you for accepting. We have been obsessed with your run since like, what, 2000 and I cannot believe 2002 was when you were on the Xbox. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I think that's, yeah, that's about when I left was 2002, 2003. So we, we got asked, we're going to just dive into all these questions we have because we have like four pages of notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> try and keep it tight. We'll try and keep we're, it tight. We're going to try to keep it a little tight here. But, you know, Chuck, the first question we, we want to ask is how did your run on Uncanny X-Men come about? It came about because I had sold U.S. War Machine to Marvel and the editorial office that handled it was the X uh, was shared an office with the X guys. So Mark Powers and Pete Franco at the time were the editors on the books and they had been reading War Machine, really liked what I was doing and asked if I would be interested in, in writing the X-Men after uh, Joe Casey decided to leave. So uh, I said, yeah, sure. (laughs) It was my favorite comic as a kid. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. But yeah, it was a little nerve wracking, but I actually wound up enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah, I can't even I can't even imagine like my life's dream probably would be would be to write for an X-Men comic. So to just have somebody like casually ask me, hey, you feel like writing the X-Men? I mean, I would probably faint. I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm really not sure how you didn't. But but in in, in addition to, to Uncanny X-Men, you did also migrate from that to um, Adjectiveless X-Men, which was which was a shorter run. Was that? Was that always meant to be uh, a one-off arc? Was that always meant to be as short as it, it wound up being? Was I, 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 when I got the questions, I was hoping to be able to research some of this stuff because it's 20 years and I don't remember everything. But <laughs> I didn't remember which arc had gotten moved because it wasn't always originally intended to be an, an adjectiveless X-Men. Is that the one where they go back to the island? Yeah, so it was Day of Adam, and it was where Gambit goes blind, and it it definitely is part of your uncanny story. It's just because, I guess it was a Reloaded era, and they were starting, you know, to to bring back adjective lists from. I think Flint, correct me if I'm wrong. From New X Men, it went back to adjective lists. It went back to adjective lists, and then they shuffled Claremont from Extreme to Uncanny, and then. Astonishing was launched with Whedon as like the flagship uh, of, of the line at that point. So that's 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 the the era I'm talking about. But yeah, as Dayspring mentioned, it was it was the arc where where Gambit uh, lost his sight. Okay, um, I honestly don't remember that story. I'm sorry. I I, I tried to find it online, but I couldn't, so I don't I can't remember it. Um, I don't remember writing a Gambit loses his sight story. Was that mine? Yeah, yeah, with with Salvador LaRocca was there. I think you were doing mostly setup, if I remember correctly. Hang on a second. Let me let me just double check this day of Adam. You definitely have the writing credit for it. Uh yeah, day of Adam. Chuck Austin right there. It was yeah. literally like he was like holding a card and it exploded in his face. Is wow. is sort of how it happened. And then and then it got wreck on like three issues later. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I, I honestly, I'm not sure. 
I don't, I, that's, I, it's funny. Cause I remember most of the stories when somebody reminds me, I remember the ultimate X-Men gambit two-parter, mm-hmm. but I don't, yeah. I don't remember that story. Oh God. It's so sad. I'm getting so old. It's no, well, listen, it would be us. That's for sure. Like, <laughs> no, we are asking you a story that you wrote like 20 years ago. I don't, I don't think it's fair for, if someone asked me what I did this morning, I'd be like, Oh yeah. But um, I, I don't know if maybe how I, I mean, I don't want to like speak for editorial or anything, but like, I don't know if like maybe they put your name on it and it was something else. But hang on, I have the cover right here. Maybe that will jog your memory. And let me just make sure that in the book, it says your name because it says it on the app and the cover. Yep. Oh. By Chuck Austin. It's this. This is a cover, if you remember. Oh, actually, I do remember that cover. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. I, my phone I, is. I love working with Sal. I don't remember. Yeah, he's wearing a blindfold there, if you can see that. Bro. Yeah, wow. I just don't remember. God, this is so sad. No, it's not. First question out of the gate, and I don't remember anything. It is a. not. <laughs> I mean, literally, to ask me what I was doing 20 years ago, no clue. No clue. So no, no. But you know what? You know what you're probably, when you're saying that they went back to Genosha, that was what in my head canon was your last issue, which we'll talk about later on. But that is when Magneto had just died in New yeah. X Men and yeah. they were bringing the coffin over. And that, it, I forgot you had done Day of Adam because yeah. they had migrated over to Adjectiveless. And you had asked the questions about uh, Annie and Carter. That was the last page of the last thing that i wrote so that's how i remember it but yeah um, and that and that appeared in day of adam because i thought it appeared at the end of uh, of the genosha story but it was actually in day of adam that's why poor um, poor flank was getting all these dms for me at like three in the morning because i couldn't sleep the other night and i was like i'm trying to find everything here yeah, yeah. I, I went to bed with the qu- list of questions being like five from me, maybe 10 from him to being like <laughs> 30 overall. I was like, OK, we're going to have a pretty good, comprehensive uh, uh, interview here. Yeah. Um, but so so that that jumping back to the to the uncanny uncanny era really quick. Um, that was when your uh, co-writers are uh, not well, not co-writers, but uh, your fellow writers in the X office were Chris Claremont and, and Grant Morrison. Yeah. Uh, what was it like with them? Did you have any uh, collaboration? Did you interact all that much? You know, have any of these like X retreats they talk about now? Uh, I I wasn't involved in any in any X retreats. Um, we we were all pretty much separate. I ran into I met Grant a couple of times at a couple of conventions. Very happy to talk to me, especially because we usually were sitting next to each other at autograph tape, which is <laughs> awesome. Um, but uh, and Claremont and I we we we. We actually, I think it was a little awkward at first when I first started writing, but we eventually got, became very friendly and we were, I remember, I remember patting him on the back and telling him, dude, look what you created when we were watching the previews for the X-Men movie. And uh, he was just like bursting with joy. He was so overwhelmed. Um, But uh, so we, you know, we had a a nice relationship, but we never actually worked together. We just would run into each other at cons. I ran into him once at the Marvel office and, and he was very kind to remind me that I was the most hated man online. Uh, (laughs) Well, not in this circle, not in this circle. I I, I hope you can feel, feel the love from the the power of X-Men community because, you know, uh, we, we really enjoy your run. It's full of a lot of, a lot of great characters and, and, and great ideas. And uh, it was, it was different to what Claremont and Morrison were doing. And I'm the kind of person who really likes 
uh, some variety and some diversity uh, in my X-Men books. I like each of them to have their own niche. And, uh, you know, I think you had that. And, you know, whether or not it's everybody's taste, I I can't say, but I certainly was was a huge fan of it. So. Oh, well, thanks. Oh, yeah. Um, And and Chuck, are you telling us that an X-Men writer was getting hate online? Gasp! (laughs) Never have heard that before! Yeah, but you got to remember, this was the early days of the internet. And I think I was sort of the first one to get really, really savaged. It, after I was gone, I hear everybody got it. But um, but just, I was kind of the, the test subject, as it were. And I didn't always handle it well. You know, I would do interviews and I would say controversial things. And because and, I didn't think anybody was reading or paying attention. And so I would just sort of say whatever came to mind. I was a lot less political. Uh, since I've been working in television now, I've learned to be much more diplomatic and, and uh, much more polite about the way I put things. So, um, so some of that I brought on myself. Some of it was just, it was the time. It was, the, it was really the, the online fans kind of finding their feet and recognizing that they had a little bit of power. Um, so yeah, no, there were people and it's honest, it's funny that you had mentioned before when you were asking me about this interview about juggernaut, um, the hatred for juggernaut was intense, absolutely intense. That's wild. I mean, we're going to, we're going to definitely, you know, we definitely have some character related questions. So I'll save my, my total juggernaut gushing for later, but like, that is like one of my favorite things that you did was, was bring him into the fold. Oh, thank you. But like I, you know, actually, you know, Dayspring and I, we actually met on on a message board um, about, I guess, you know, 17, somewhere between 17, 20 years ago. I'm not sure of the exact timeline at, at, at this point. And, and I actually, you know, I think the hate you were getting was definitely more in the message boards. I think all of that was yeah. like kind of like a pre-Twitter uh, scenario. And I, you know, me- that message boards were so toxic and that I found them to be so toxic in that time that I actually never got involved in Twitter because I was so put off by the toxicity coming from the message boards that I was just like, Same oh here. my God, we're going to give people only 180 characters. They're going to be harsher than, than ever before. <laughs> they have to be know? brevity. It's brevity now, but <laughs> yeah. Chuck, to, to give you an idea, because of how vitriolic those message boards were, it turned me off from comics for a while. And, you know, when we started creating like a space for ourselves here on Instagram and the podcast community, we wanted somewhere that it was just like, listen, we are not here to be hateful. Like We love X-Men and we love the stories behind everything. We don't want to be angry like like that. I mean, that's not it's so sad that the loudest on Twitter usually is seen as being emblematic of a group, but it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. I absolutely know what you mean. And and over time, I began to recognize that as I would run into people and they would say, you know, I was one of those people that loved your writing, but I didn't want to say anything online because I would get attacked. So I started to sort of see that. And this is I mean, we're seeing that still now in a lot of the political situation that's going on. But there's just there's this sort of tendency to go towards the bullying side when people feel like they're losing and nobody wants to fight against a bully. So ultimately, it makes the bully win. Um, So. You know, that was it's funny. That was some of the stuff that I wanted to deal with with Juggernaut and Sammy, too. So, oh, you know, I, I we got feels on Juggernaut and oh, yeah. Sammy, <laughs> both, both of them. But, but, but wait, 
<laughs> so, so, so you, you came in during the Morrison era after Joe Casey and Ian Churchill. Well, Ian left before for, before Casey, but you came in there and then you also started, you know, you ended at the, uh, with the Whedon era, which was the reloaded era. What was like the vibe like during that transition to go from Morrison, which was a very gritty, you know, reaction to the movies, you know, take on the comic books to the astonishing era, which was more embracing the superhero elements. Yeah. Um, it was, it was interesting because they, for the most part, they let us do our own thing. And um, what they found is that people would gravitate towards one book or another, depending on their sort of personal tastes. And the sales were, I mean, as much as, as Grant was like, you know, the kingmaker and the godmaker there, my sales, I was shocked to find out were only about 5,000 apart. Wow. So the, the sales all stayed in the rel same relative area. I would, I lost a lot of sort of the diehard continuity fans, but I gained a lot of new readers or old readers who hadn't read the comics in a long time. So it kind of, it became a wash. And um, in fact, I would get um, the, the most surprising thing of all was I, I would get women coming up to me at cons and saying, I started reading comics because of you. And I got my mom to read them too. So I was, it, it was what, it was really what Marvel asked me to do was to try to broaden out the audience and try to reach out beyond the, the kind of the, the typical X fans, because I was sort of the tier, third tier guy. They wanted, uh, they wanted to see how far we could kind of push it and, and go. And it, and it seemed to work out in a lot of ways. They got a lot of new fans that they hadn't expected to get at all. So, um, you know, I think in some ways it, it worked, but it was not, it was not kind of, there was not a, um, a guided or a concerted effort to make the books one way or the other grant they wanted to do whatever sort of fun weird gritty unusual stories were and then they wanted um you know joe casey to do sort of his dark and gritty realistic stuff and they wanted me to do sort of the the, the kind of the, the more remote uh, romantic heartfelt kind of stuff um so that's kind of just sort of they were happy with whatever we were doing as long as people were reading it they you know yeah, the yeah. romantic, heartfelt stuff like Nurse Annie kissing Havoc in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> we got Nurse Annie questions. I'm sure Listeners, you Nurse, buckle up. I'm sorry, Flink, I cut you off. No, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always going to give you your moment for, for Nurse Annie. Um, so, like, the one sort of constant, uh, you know, creators, the writers, they, they shift around, um, you know, but the one constant, uh, I, I think, at least if my memory serves during your era, was uh, Joe Quesada as, as the editor-in-chief of, of Marvel. Did some of those directives about, um, you know, you having the, the romance book and, and Whedon having the kind of weird and gritty book, did that come from Joe Quesada or did that, was that more of a micro uh, in the X office thing? No, it was actually, I, I would say it was more of a micro in the X office thing. Joe was bigger. He, he would look at the sales and say, okay, something's not working here. We need to make an adjustment. He wouldn't necessarily, he would, at least that's how I, my experience of working with him. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes you just wouldn't find out. Like one day I got a call and Brian Bendis was on the Avengers and I wasn't, you know, it just happens. Yeah. Uh, but with the X books, as long as they were, they were selling and holding their own and, and he was getting the same thing I was getting. He was getting new readers coming up to him at conventions and saying, you know, I, I read uh, Uncanny X-Men, but I don't read any other Marvel book. And so he, he recognized that there was value in it. Um, so he was perfectly fine to kind of let me do what I wanted to do. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and everybody else too, I think. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody told Grant what to do. <laughs> yeah. And it, it shows in the work. I mean, everybody was doing their own thing. Everybody had their own vibe. And, and I feel like it wasn't quite as homogenous as it kind of can be at times when there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And that, that's kind of why, you know, Dayspring and I have such an affinity for that era is, is because, you know, it was fun. It was different. Everything yeah. kind of had its own vibe. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, Chuck, do you think that editorial is probably very different now, given the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and these characters now, potentially all of them having billion dollar potential there? Do you think it was easier back then to get away with, you know, some of the stories you told versus today? It was it was much easier. I I mean, I, I don't know about today. I haven't really talked to anybody in the the X offices or the Marvel offices. Um, so I don't know. I, I, once I walked away from comics, I pretty much walked away. So, um, you know, any questions that you have after I left, I don't know that I have an answer to, because I, I wasn't paying attention to what, you know, like Chris was doing or other people were doing, but um, uh, the, there at the time, I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't feel like I wanted to stay and write, I, I actually, it was my choice to leave I, uh, when I finally left uh, Uncanny and left Marvel um, they were going through internal changes already because of the movies and because they were getting sold in target stores. So they had to be really careful about what they put in. And I actually had a, a conversation with Mike Martz at one point where he wouldn't let me do a scene. He didn't want me to do a scene in one of the books that had already been done in giant size X-Men number one. So I thought, but wait a minute, you, this has already been done. He says, yeah, but we couldn't sell that in a target store now. So, so they, it's, it became more restrictive, the things that you could do and they had much more specific ideas. So, uh, and I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I liked having a little bit of that free. I I liked writing sort of the weirdy twilight zone-esque kind of stories with a heart. Well, Flink knows where I'm going to go with this because the target edition of the Emma Frost solo omitted a lot of the lgbtqia plus romance mm-hmm. between oh, her really? brother christian yeah so if you look at it they they have like a couple panels where they're holding hands and stuff like that and it's gone it, it was omitted and i remember when i saw that i was like oh that's weird i i used to work in book publishing so i get it they edited it for that but i was like that's so weird with marvel my, my follow-up question to this is what was the scene that that you couldn't make it in that was in giant size but couldn't you couldn't redo um, I think it was, there was a kind of a reboot just before I left. And, and I, if, if I remember correctly, it was Havoc was giving a tour to somebody yep, of the yep. mansion. And um, there was a scene where he goes in and Storm is, is in her garden in, in, in yes. her garden. And yes. uh, he said, no, she can't be naked. And I said, but she's been naked. She was, been, you know, as far back as the early X-Men, Chris Claremont and John Byrne days. And he said, we can't do that anymore. So um you know, and I'm, I'm somebody who likes to, I like to push the limits a little bit. I like to go outside the box with yeah. what I'm doing. So, um, uh, it, it just became less, it became more, they needed things done a specific way. And I didn't want to write that way. That scene yeah. lives rent-free in my head because I can picture LaRocca did the art. Havoc is walking through the garden and Storm yeah. stops him and she's here like, you were told that you can't go through this. It was posted on the bulletin board last week. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because I revisited your, your arc this week, um, I was like, oh, my God, do you remember like when you would post things on the bulletin board in school? <laughs> and now you're like, if it's not on my Discord or like our DM group chat, like it doesn't even register, you know, it's. Yeah. 
It was yeah. definitely very emblematic of a certain time. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. But I love doing that stuff because it reminded, you know, it was like, well, it's a school. You know, these are things that people have to deal with. Um, yeah. How does Xavier get teachers? And that led to North Star. So, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get to North Star in a second. But you mentioned. <laughs> Keep getting um, ahead of you. Sorry. Oh, no, no. You, you, you mentioned pushing um, boundaries. You know, you like to push boundaries a little. You like to do things a little bit outside of the box. And, you know, I think you, you definitely accomplished that uh, when you run, especially in some of your, your character work. Um, were you given like free reign to significantly impact your, the, your cast origins, such as like you, you contributed, you know, majorly to both Polaris and Nightcrawler, who are these iconic X-Men characters and, and, and you, you know, changed their backstory significantly. Was there, uh, was there any pushback to that? As, as long as they thought the stories were good, they were perfectly okay with it. Um, yeah. I would come to them and ask them questions about the origin and did, you know, what, what about this and what about that? Or, you know, the, the past history, um, with, with Lorna, I kind of inherited crazy Lorna because, uh, Grant made her insane, um, after the Genosha thing. And, um, so I had a, I had different, different story in mind for her before he did that. And so I, I was kind of adjusting on the fly and, yeah. And I really, I kind of liked the direction that it was going. And so I wanted to kind of really hammer in her origin and tie her closer to Magneto because uh, um, I thought it would, I thought it would give her greater um, power and authority as somebody who you didn't know which way she was going to go at this point. Yeah. So what, what was your original vision for, for, for Lorna? Where did you want to take her before you realized she was cray cray because she witnessed the entire genocide of, of, of Genosha. But where, when you were drafting your notes for Polaris, where did you want to take her? Um, well, we, we were going to have uh, her and have it come together and then talk about getting married and then actually have a marriage ceremony that went wrong when they realized in a lot of ways that they weren't meant to be together um, because that, you know, uh, Obviously, one of the things that sells well is is um, weddings, deaths, and uh, you know returns of of favorite villains. So, um, Mike said, you know, if you want to do a wedding, we can do a wedding. And I said, well, I want to maybe we can do Havoc and and Lorna get together. And um, but can we do it differently? Can we have it not work out? And he he said, yeah, we can do that. How come? You know, what do you have in mind? And I says, I don't know. Let me give it some thought. And then I think it was literally a week or a month later, um, Grant made Lorna insane, and I thought. Okay, this is how we make it work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was always the intention of having, it's what I call a viewpoint character. It's like a, a new character that you bring in that kind of sees this, the, the environment fresh for new readers to sort of reintroduce them to the situation. So Sammy and Annie were intended to be kind of viewpoint characters. Sammy was a mutant who desperately wanted to be a part of it. And Annie was a human who didn't understand the world, but knew that it probably would benefit her because she knew that her son had some abilities that she'd been trying to keep hidden. So, um, so that's uh, the, so we decided to make Annie the one that um, uh, Havoc had a relationship with, but I, I wanted to make it a little, I, I never like to take things in a sort of a straight direction. So we made Annie um, a very lonely person who gets kind of caught in a very embarrassing moment in the beginning by all of the other X-Men and, and um, I wanted to sort of set that as the tone and Xavier being the mind reader and sort of understanding the situation and also um, understanding that, that um, Alex was probably getting something out of it too. 
um, decides to, to sort of the same way that he decides to bring North Star and he decides to bring Annie in. Um, and, uh, and I think in some ways he senses the gift in, in Carter. Um, so he's trying to help her out in some of those ways as well. At least that was the original intent. Um, well, I, I think it's, it's there. Definitely when, when we were revisiting your arc this week, I, the first thing I noted, and it's in our questions later on, but Sammy, it, it, you start off your, your arc or your story with Sammy there. Yeah. And he very much is the point of view character. I'm also connecting now why Annie and North Star for you editorially, you kind of put them together um, because of Xavier and what we were saying about bringing in more people. It's just, it's, it's so interesting to have these conversations and, and, and see how you as a writer piece things together b- because we like to have really good tea. Uh, is there any other story that you, that you had thought of that you wanted to pitch, but it just didn't come to fruition or another writer got there before it, or you had to course correct because the character was, was different. Um, I mean, it, it happened a lot. There were um, like, I, I, there, I know this is one of your questions later and sorry, I keep getting ahead of you guys, but no, um, we edit as we go along. Don't worry. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. Um, Juggernaut happened because I couldn't have Peter. Um, Peter was spoken for and, and I wanted muscle on the team. Yeah. And so um, we were trying to figure out who I could get to replace Peter. And I said, you know, I, I, how about Juggernaut? I'd really like to, to turn him because I had read um, J2 and yeah. I thought it was part of the continuity that it was supposed to be the future that he, he winds up getting married and having a kid and, and being sort of a, a positive role model for his son. And, uh, and so I wanted to kind of bridge that, those two pieces of continuity. And I really liked the, I mean, I, I think it's no secret online that I had um, some difficulties as a child and I wanted to take some of that knowledge that I had gained over the years and use it as part of what Juggernaut went through because I know he had the same backstory. So uh, putting him and Sammy together was sort of the natural way to go because it helped, it, it, brought juggernaut in and connected him emotionally to somebody when he didn't want to connect emotionally to anybody else. And, um, and it, it afforded him the opportunity to be to Sammy, what Sammy wasn't getting from his own father. Um, So, so that was where I was going with that. I I liked it actually better in the, in the end, I was glad that I was able to use him instead of Peter Uh, and, you know, all the, the, the the hatred and the online uh, fuming about it aside, um, I was still, I'm still very proud of the way that all turned out. One of my favorite stories is, is him going home and wrecking his house um, while Sammy sort of watches like, what, the, you know, what the hell are you doing? Well, th- that's so beautiful because I mean, obviously it's heartbreaking with what happens later on with Sammy. It's how yeah. do you take this character like Juggernaut who's desperate for connections and is making this connection with Sammy? What's as a writer telling a story, what's the worst thing you can do with Juggernaut? you know, something happens to Sammy. And that was, I remember well, reading that. Horrifying. Not just something happening to Sammy. That was, <laughs> he was killed by Black yeah. Tom, who was Kane's former best friend. Like that yeah. is a heart-wrenching, horrible, horrible situation, like all around. And it was, it was absolutely gut-wrenching uh, to read. I really think you, you, you know, if your intent was to break our hearts, you, you, you really, you did. It worked. It really worked. Um, and, and like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that was, that was the intent. I mean, yeah. we, I mean, I, I've, I've joked about it since then, but Sammy was created to die. Yeah. Uh, he was always intended to go to, 
be the thing that pushes Juggernaut over the edge into being more heroic and making that final break with Black Tom. Now, the thing that I didn't understand at the time is, you know, it, it's Marvel and things go back the way they were. It's like you I think you just said it got retconned a, a month later with something that I had done. Some of that I you sort of expect. Um, but at the time, you sort of believe that you're going to have this real ability to to kind of make this happen. And if you and if you do a strong enough job with it, maybe it'll stick with people. And and that one was an important one to me. Well, I will say, I I, I will say, Juggernaut being a hero has essentially gone untouched. I mean, oh, he's wow. he's had um, some moments of villainy or here like the only time I can really think off the top of my head that he's been a full-on rampaging bad guy is when he was possessed by i can't even it was whatever the motivator for the fear itself crossover was oh yeah we're like 10 crossovers removed i can't i can't keep it straight but there was some (laughs) some evil motivating force motivating him to destroy san francisco and the x-men all had to team up to stop him and that's really the only time that he's been a full-on rampaging villain since since your run and he's currently hanging out with the x-men on on krakoa on as like one of the few non-mutants allowed to live there um doing heroic things so you know that particularly particular bit of of your legacy um really has lived on so and i you know forget what all the, the 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 toxic fans on the message boards were saying i thought that that was an incredibly interesting turn for the character um you know he his relationship with xavier his stepbrother had had evolved so much over the years that you know it it didn't feel so out of left field to 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 me to me and to hear that your motivations like one of your motivations for it aside from the personal stuff which of course is is great and and you know i appreciate you you sharing that with us but i read all of j2 back in the nineties or early two thousands. <laughs> and I loved it. So hearing yeah. that you were trying to build a bridge to that, like makes me love it like 10 times more than I already did. Oh, cool. Wait, I don't know J2. <laughs> like Googling it right <laughs> It's now. from the same universe. It was like in the same universe as like Spider-Girl. Oh, it I'm was like the next right generation now. of Marvel heroes. And J2 was Juggernaut's son. I can see him so vividly. He had like a, a shiny chrome helmet, a black outfit, and like a flannel around yeah. his waist. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going we're gonna to pin that. And we're getting back to it eventually. Future, <laughs> future episode. Wait, Chuck, though. Um, so speaking of sons, you... Uh, named Carter after friends of the podcast. And we did a panel with them at San Diego Comic-Con, Eric yeah. and Julia Leewald. You named Carter after their older son. So you're, you're friends with the Leewalds. I'm friends with the Leewalds. I have been for, oh my God, like 30 years now, I guess. Um, it's been a really long time. Uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they, um, I met them actually through my ex-wife. She had known them for years. They all lived in the same neighborhood and their kid, uh, my ex-wife had two children from a previous marriage and she had two girls, they had two boys and they used to walk their kids in strollers together and, and hang out. So when I met my ex, we, um, uh, we started hanging out with the Leewalds and I'm, I've stayed friends with them. Our, my ex-wife and I had an amicable divorce and um, uh, remained friends with most of the people that I knew. And, and I actually just had lunch with the Leewalds today and they told me to tell you hello. Oh, um, so yeah, no, they're great. I love them. And Carter is, uh, Carter has always been, um, like a little buddy of mine. Um, he, 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 we would talk about stuff and he was a big comics fan. He loved, uh, Juggernaut, his best friend. Juggernaut is his absolute favorite character. And, uh, um, so 
so, so I, I named Carter after him and uh, um, it was just like my little tip of the hat to the, to the Lee Waltz. That's so cool. that was after that was after they had already finished uh, their X-Men run. So X-Men writers showing other X-Men writers love. We, we, <laughs> we love to see it. We love to see it. Um, are you, are, so I assume maybe that you have seen the, their, their work on the animated series. Uh, I've seen a little bit of it. It was, I was, I'm older than that. So, well, yeah. Uh, um, so I hadn't, I wasn't really into animation at the time, but I've seen several episodes and I've read Eric's book, um, which has actually been incredibly helpful. I was just telling Eric today, it's been very helpful to me as a showrunner because he, he writes about things in there that I've had to deal with. And he has like suggested solutions for how he dealt with them. And, and it's actually been really beneficial. It's a great book. The, the, yeah. the art and then the one that they didn't self-publish it but they had a smaller press for it that's like yeah. this big that is yeah. like before we got the the nice one that that came out two years ago yeah. that was the one everyone was reading you got every morsel of information there yeah yeah it's great stuff in there yeah well you have just just over a year to catch up on the leewald's work before <laughs> before the continuation series x-men 97 uh debuts next october so yeah, uh, you know, hopefully maybe you can you can you can check that out. I know we're we're excited for it. The X-Men fans are all, are all excited for it for sure. I, I mean, I'm excited for them. I mean, I, I, I especially since it apparently picks up right at the end of their run. So, yeah. so, yeah, now I have to watch them all so that I can. It'll make sense to me when I watch it. So, yeah, I we have nothing but love for the Lee Walds. The way that they were able to take the complex you know, stories and character arcs from, from, you know, 30 years of comics at that point and boil it down to an audience that, you know, of where seven-year-olds could, could understand it was just genius, genius. They were so good. So good. Well, that's but that's also where, I mean, I see a lot of their influence in Shira because <laughs> that Shira reboot, oh my, we, we'll talk about that later, but that Shira reboot was smart it told really good stories. It highlighted a very diverse cast. And it also was able to take the Shira mythos and streamline it. And that's not easy because there's, as a Shira fan from like the 80s, there's not much mythos there. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I, it, 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 no hate on, on the OG Shira because I love OG Shira. But, you know, it was... It was a bit thin, and what you delivered in Netflix, you were the executive producer. I, for, I for was, sure. but I should make it clear that I was really there as Noel's support and the writer's support. Um, I gave notes on on stories and how to how to like push the emotion in them, not even in the board stage, not even really to change script stuff. So, so I I have to give Noel and the writers all the credit for the direction of the series and where they went with it. I'll take some credit for helping to um, to for them helping them to achieve their vision uh, and you know thank God for Mattel and for DreamWorks for allowing them to end it the way that they did for to being able to lay pipe for all of that stuff so that it made sense when we got to the ending um, so I'll uh, I'll take some of that credit but I really I gotta give that's credit where credit is due those writers were fantastic I loved working with them uh, I still love their writing I can tell when I see a show that it's better <laughs> better written than most others because they're just so talented but um, uh, yeah, so I, it's already disappoint, but, um, I came in actually like episode eight, I think, mm -hmm. or some eight or eight or nine had just been delivered and we still hadn't even sent overseas, uh, episode 
12 or 13. So, um, so I got involved there uh, and it was really more just to kind of help Noel to, to kind of get it out the door. Um, she was well, a shout out to story. Noel because excellent, yeah. excellent series and all the writers and all of you involved. Yeah. I haven't seen it and y'all just sold me on it. So I'll, <laughs> you I'll, I'll have to check it. I'll check it out. It always baffles me that you're not, you, you didn't grow up on Shira. I didn't. A He-Man and Shira. I, I was like one or two years, one or two years late in the eighties, just born a little late for, for, I think the He-Man and Shira boom. So, okay. Okay. So yeah. we've, we've, yeah. we've, We've touched on, you know, a couple of characters that you have, you know, uh, that you had on your cast. But my personal favorite of, of the characters, I have a holy trinity of X-Men characters and it's Dazzler, Emma Frost, and then Havoc, who you were the first writer to inherit him uh, post his stint leading a team of alternate universe, like dark X-Men uh, over in, in Mutant X. Um, was he someone you sort of inherited? Did you seek him out? Um, he was, uh, most of the characters were kind of, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but kind of the ones that were left from the other writers and, um, or suggestions from Mike Martz. Um, I, uh, I had not re religiously read the X-Men for a few years, I think, yeah. before that. So I didn't really know where things were or where the characters were or what was going on with them. I had to go out and spend a small fortune on back issues to research them and find out where they had been. Like, I didn't even know that Havoc had been in that dark uh, alternate universe. So, yeah. Um, so when they, so, and, and pretty much I love all of the characters and, and Havoc was one of my favorites because of that old Neil Adams uniform oh. uh, when I was a kid. Um, but um, so, but the, the, so what would happen is I would get excited about a character and then I would find out, well, we don't know what happened to Havoc. He disappeared. He felt he, there was a plane crash and he disappeared. And I was like, well, okay. So now I'm, I have to like, not only do I have to find a way to bring him back to life, but give him a couple of episodes to kind of get his feet under him before I can even turn him into the hero that I'd like to. So, um, so those are all of the things that, um, that I actually sort of took as a challenge and as a lot of fun to try to figure out a way to do it. But, but most of the characters were ones that they asked me to do. I'll even say that sadly for me, North star was not my first idea. He was, uh, uh, but he was one that, um, uh, because I thought of him as a pair with his sister. And so, and Mike said, uh, he said, how would you feel about bringing North star and people love North star. And I said, okay, that'd be great. Sure. He's sort of a, a, um, a tip of the hat to an old boss of mine who gave me my first job and, who I love dearly. And so um, I was able to sort of play with him because my friend, Steve was, um, uh, is, he's a, a tremendous, um, uh, uh, he's a tremendous leader. He's one of those guys who can do anything that he sets his mind to. And so I was able to sort of take that, that like personality edge and bring it. And it, and it's like what you were talking about before Dayspring, when he said, when he said, uh, you know, you sort of raised the stakes on, on the stories to, to deal with the individual personalities. It's like that first story, Fall Down, Go Boom, which is, I think, still one of my favorites, is, um, uh, is North Star up until that point is, is someone who's so good at what he does that he hasn't failed. So I wanted to tell the story where he actually fails and it, and it has an impact on him. Um, and there was some argument back and forth with, uh, with the editorial department because they kept saying, well, how are we going get, to get him out of this? How is he going to save the kid? And I said, no, he's, he's not going to save the kid. That's actually how the story is supposed to end. And, and I remember somebody saying, well, you're going to make people cry and they're not going to like that. <laughs> well, but that's sort of the idea is that you've got to have this emotional punch, this impact yeah. on North star to make him go from being 
sort of the selfish guy that can do anything and take care of anything to being a member of a team who understands the value of mentoring the young. Um, yeah. And so. I, I think some of those, those layers that you gave Northstar sort of helped to separate him from Quicksilver, who is another kind of selfish sort of full of himself speedster and i think you were the first time you know it's obviously north star gay is that's a, a huge defining trait that uh, separates him from pietro but so far as like how he you know behaved in the comics and 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 treated other people um you sort of started the trend of of moving him away from being just another kind of sassy speedster character and i you know i really liked it i i enjoyed whether or not it was your choice to add him to the cast i'm really glad that that he was there but that oh, goes but that goes to what we were saying earlier what you said flink that a lot of the decisions you made chuck with polaris's origin you know with, with even havoc's you know complicated relationship with polaris and himself and all the, everything he endured is still in the books today north star is an x-man because you brought him onto the team and i i mean even thinking about how you just described his story and how you approached it that also mirrors his very famous coming out story where he found the baby in the dumpster. And that's sort of like, it, he, he, he morphs from this very sassy speedster, as you said, Flink, into this very caring, nurturing individual. And, and that was, I mean, it just goes to show all the thought you put into the run and all that money you spent on back issues because, <laughs> because that, that, that's really present there with the character. And I think that's why at a very impressionable age, I, I was graduating high school when you're, you were doing mm -hmm. your run, why it spoke that representation matter. It wasn't just having, you know, the gay character on the team. You, you right. wrote a very well thought out character in, in North Star. Yeah. Yeah. It was important to me. It was really important to me. Um, uh, to, I had to, I had to give a nod to Steve who was a tre tremendous mentor in my life. So um, I wanted to have a character that was that kind of mentor to other people. So um, yeah, it was really important to me. And, and actually I, I read an interview with James Tinian where he said he was influenced by the story where he, he falls in love with Iceman. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that, that actually had an impact on him becoming a writer. Uh, so, for comics so was that ever supposed to go somewhere i still to this day even when iceman <laughs> came out i always thought like okay they're going to resolve this north star iceman <laughs> romance because they're run. did you ever have a longevity with that well the thing is that you know and this is the sort of the tough thing about x-men is that i had a longevity for every character i had ideas for where they were all going to wind up and where they were all going to go um, I think there's, you've got a question that everybody asks me about, um, about Husk and, and Angel, um, but the, that was supposed to have repercussions, you know? Um, and it's, it, it, it was a scene that was written because I've known too many young, young people who have done passionate, uh, but, but sometimes not well thought out things in their lives. And um and that, and, and in my mind, it was far enough away that you couldn't see what was going on. It was just everybody kind of knew what was happening. And then I don't know if it was still in the book or not, but there was a scene where the underwear falls and lands on yep. Nightcrawler's face. So, yep. um, so there was no question what was going on, but you weren't, they weren't supposed to be close enough to see it. And they were you know, pretty much close to the sun. So uh, it wouldn't be that obvious, but I wanted to have Sam like, dude, 
dude, <laughs> that's my sister. Uh, so, you know, so there are, you have all of these grand plans for further on down the road. You just never, you never get the chance to get there. And I'm sure Chris feels the same way. I'm sure that he has all these ideas that he wants to get to. And, and suddenly a character like Wolverine takes off and people want you to do more Wolverine. And so you don't get around to doing that havoc story that you always had in mind. And um, I had grand plans for Stacey X. There was a, there's a storyline where um, she was supposed to come back in a way that I think would have surprised a lot of people um, and uh, never got around to getting to that story. Um, so I would love to just know what that story Surprise was going to be. We, oh. we were, we're Stacey X fans. We so. are. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. we um, love Stacey X. Yeah, I was, was so grateful to Joe Casey for creating her. She was such a great, I mean, she's, every, what you really want is conflict between characters. And she was mm-hmm. just walking, talking conflict. <laughs> What what was she said to Paige? She's like, ha ha, take that Baywatch. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and like Paige walks away running. And, and then, you know, that's the first indication we get with Archangel and her. But, you know, she's here. Oh, she's young. Don't worry about it. So, yeah, yeah. please go on. I'm sorry to cut you off. Well, oh, they did. And I guess this goes to your question earlier. Were there stories that I wanted to do that I didn't get the chance to do? Well, one of them was I wanted they they explained Mr. Sinister to me, who always looked sort of ridiculous. I thought I didn't understand. I did. I he came in after I was a fan and I didn't know much about him. So Mike explained to me that he was supposed to be the Joseph Mengele of the X universe. And I thought, he's not. I said, do you know who Joseph Mengele is? And Mike goes, yeah, I know who he is, but you know, it's it's comic books. And I said, well, I have the story idea that now that you brought it up that I would really like to do where he, he opens a concentration camp and he kidnaps all of the X-Men and starts performing experiments on them to see how far he can push their mutant abilities. And he has Angel staked out in the middle of this concentration camp um, to uh, underneath the blazing sun to see how, he, how much his healing powers will work. And he keeps taking samples of his blood. And in the process of doing that, there was this character, this lizard woman character who keeps coming out to take care of him at night. And when nobody else can see, she gives him water, she takes care of him. And we find out later that it was a, a second involved uh, Stacy X oh. that she, her, her le- uh, snakeskin um, side continued to evolve to the point where, and that's why she left. Um, she saw herself in competition with, with uh, Paige. And uh, um, all she could see was if I'm not pretty, Angel's not gonna be interested in me. So she left and then she has this opportunity to sort of help them out, it goes really wrong. And, and uh, um, Angel still has enough left in him to, to he- heal her at the end of that story. So can, can, can I tell you, just hearing you talk about all the, uh, your plans and, and your approach again, you're such a talented writer because I, I have my MFA in writing. And the one thing that you are always taught in the sort of, you know, writing course is you plant the seeds early on and you teach your readers how to, you know, to read your story, but also paying off your stories. And that's why I think so many narratives that we're obsessed with, it's because (laughs) you can trace it back. One scene pays off later on. And again, that scene that I just quoted, like, ah, Baywatch, I don't know why (laughs) Stacey X sounds like that in my head, but that, that would have paid off later on with that scene you were describing. So, yeah. I mean, I was approaching it as the the thing that I, I felt when I was writing the X-Men is that it works best and Mike Martz actually said this about my writing at one point. He said, you know, he said, I love your arcs, but he said, your one and dones are just so great. He loved the, the story about Angel uh, healing the kids um, uh, while they're digging up um, uh, uh, 
I got his name wrong in the comic because I'm a Mad Magazine fan and I don't want to get it wrong now. Uh, skin. His Angelo real... Espinosa. Yeah. Thank you. Angelo Espinosa. They're digging up his grave while Angel is healing the kid of the guy who's t- digging up his grave. Um, and so all of those one-offs or stories are, are ones that I enjoyed the most because they paid off. Um, the arcs were all, and all of this stuff was supposed to pay off. And I'm sure Chris feels the same way. There's just not enough time. You can't get to it all. Yeah. There's so many ideas that you have and you don't control the characters. You know, I mean, I was working towards this idea that I had for where Nightcrawler was going to wind up. And then yeah. Yeah. Davis came back and they gave him Nightcrawler. So, um, because he wanted Nightcrawler. So, um, and he's, he's a top tier guy and I'm not. Um, so you, you do, you have all these grand ideas. You hope you're going to get to them. So yeah, as far as story ideas go, there were tons of them. Uh, I couldn't wait to get to the, the Sam angel, um, face off over his sister. And, uh, uh, but you know, you just, you, you don't get, you don't get the opportunity. It just doesn't happen. There's too many characters, too many stories. Yeah. I mean, but you know, and to, to our listeners, to be clear, we're the scene that, that we're alluding to with, uh, Archangel, uh, Husk and Sam, <laughs> Uh, it is from the She Lies with Angels story arc. And after they they solve, you know, the, the, the problem of the day, Archangel and Husk celebrate by by flying off into the air. And as as Chuck mentioned, uh, clothes begin uh, falling from the sky, which is, you know, it was a control kind of a controversial moment uh, at the time. I was, you know, I was a teenager at the time, so I was very amused by it. I thought I thought it was great. It went over um, my head. I was like, <laughs> oh, they flew away and her shoe fell on that girl's head. Yeah, uh-huh. to be clear, I do think it was a, sh- they, I do think they changed it from yeah. panties to a it shoe. Was a, it was a okay. shoe. It, it was her slipper. Uh, okay. But I, yeah, I definitely picked up on, on uh, what was happening there. But, but knowing, you know, it, I, I suddenly I think that it's like less controversial uh, after you have explained it a little bit better and like knowing that you were seeding a greater story because I think that came sort of more at the end of your of your run so yeah. I don't think you had much of an opportunity to to follow up on that but knowing that you were going to and there that there would be you know uh, pretty blonde boy versus pretty blonde boy confrontation between Cannonball and and Angel. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun to me. So in that, oh, in that come context, back and write it. I, I, I appreciate it, um, a lot more than just a teehee that's, that, that's dirty kind of, kind <laughs> of, kind of moment. Um, but speaking of, of, of X-Men couples, uh, one of the, the major changes you had, I think most of us sort of assumed that Havoc and Polaris would, um, pick right up where where they left off, and they kind of obviously Polaris thought that that they were going to as well um, as you know she she proposed to to Havoc. But I am one of the Havoc fans who kind of um, think they function better as characters when they aren't a couple. So in addition to you know you inherited kind of crazy Polaris, what what was your motivation to to split them up? Um, the well, this is this is me admitting something I probably shouldn't, but I'm a soap opera fan from way back. Um, and I knew it when you said what sells are wedding deaths and returns. <laughs> I think Mark Cherry said that about Desperate Housewives, you know, yeah. and, that, and how at the end of Desperate Housewives, you get all three of that in the end yeah. because it was a nod to soap operas. 
Yeah. And that's exactly what I was doing. And, and, and people would complain about it. But when I was raised on Marvel Comics, everybody used to complain that Marvel was the soap opera company. So I thought I didn't invent this. I didn't create it. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm digging in. I'm going further than most people do. So, you know, when you're when you're when you're writing a soap opera, you can't have um you can't have the happy ending expect happen the way you expect it to. And really, once Grant made her crazy, it made it easy. It made it really yeah. easy because now her point of view has changed. She was on Genosha. She watched the the, uh, the massacre. It's going to change your point of view. To, I mean, she the scene where she takes Xavier and crushes him in the wheelchair to me is is one of my another one of my favorite scenes. I love that whole story. And, and just so you know, originally Wolverine climbed up to the top of the the uh, the um, uh, magneto sculpture and pissed on it uh, oh my god yeah but they wouldn't let me do it um it was a little too far uh really and i said look they did this on shogun uh, you know when i was in college and again no you can't do it well yeah so. well because wolverine would be so angry because yeah. magneto murdered our god queen jean gray yeah. and so it would be very i know <laughs> it's always motivated <laughs> jean gray is my favorite character we're always we motivated by this jean far gray. without a mention of jean gray i was really thinking we were going to go all the way and he, and you know, Chuck wrote Jean in the Nightcrawler story. She was there. Yeah. And also when Cyclops got the call that uh, Havoc was alive, Jean is in the background. She's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, yes, there's Jean. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Chuck. No, <laughs> back to Polaris, please. <laughs> yes, go back to Polaris. <laughs> back to Polaris. Yeah. So Polaris, I mean, you know, you, you want, you want it. I, I, the thing that they teach you in writing, and I'm, I'm sure now that you know this too, Dayspring, is that it, it's 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 conflict, it's tension, it's you know keeping a story moving with surprise and things that are unexpected, not things that are surprising in a way that doesn't make sense. But if Polaris has watched an entire island full of mutants slaughtered, her point of view is now going to be different than than Xavier's. It's going to be now different than than um, uh, uh, then Alex's. And yeah. so I, I didn't really see a way to be able to put them together anyway, at that point, because I, I saw them as, um, now they've got very different points of view. It's why she's able to do the, the Xavier gets crushed in the wheelchair scene, which, um, to me, it said everything there was about her point of view now and, and Xavier's point of view, when he says, I will die. Um, that to me is, you know, I will not cross that line. And now she's not sure. You know, it's one of the reasons she puts on the Magneto helmet at the end. It's like, will I go that far? Um, and I know you've got more questions about that and Zorn, and 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 I guess I'll let you guys ask that instead of just no. Please go on. You know, yeah, so go ahead. We have a friend of the podcast named Amanda Martini, and uh, she's a drag queen, and she did the Polaris in the wedding dress with the helmet oh. at a con. <laughs> And it is such, well, first of all, they called her Dragnito. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> which is which great. Amanda was like, yeah. I'm owning this. That's the best name ever. But also, it was such an iconic moment. And, and, and when you were a reader at the time, there was nothing more iconic in the books right there. When Polaris has that wedding dress and she has a Magneto helmet and she's here like, here comes the bride. Oh, shucks. Now I got this stuck in my head. And she goes after Annie and, and Havoc. What? Tell us, unpack that for us that 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 scene was that was it philip tan who was the artist for that issue i'm forgetting off the top of my head but was it the artist who came up with that look did you suggest it how was what was the I, process there if i mean i 
I could be wrong. It, it could have been the artist. It could have been the editors, but I, I believe it was in the script because she pulls it together. Doesn't she, she makes yeah. it. So, yeah. so I would have described that in the script and broken it up by panel. So um, I imagine that that was something that I put in the script, but I, I wouldn't swear to it. If, you know, if Philip or Mike or Mike come along and tell, tell me, no, 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 Chuck didn't come up with that. And, uh, you know, fine. But, but my, I remember my original intent was to show that you know, she's gone, she's gone to the other side and she doesn't know she's, she's just confused and in pain. And this is like the worst possible thing. I mean, I think she says it later in the story. It's like you on my perfect day, you do this to me on my most perfect day. And, you know, it's like how any woman would feel on their wedding day to find out that the guy doesn't want to marry them, that he's not there for them. And so the, the helmet was to show it was, for one thing, Polaris had never really had a very defined personality up until that point. So now we were sort of able to give her a really defined personality, a little, a little on the edge, a little darkly funny and, and really, really conflicted and confused because she's had this one point of view and now she sees the other point of view so clearly in some ways it's like, it's like stories that I've heard from, um, uh, uh, in, in interviews with guys who discovered the concentration camps when they were in World War II. It's like, it's that kind of horror that you're faced with that makes you, that just changes you. You see something that you um, never in your life expected to see. And it just makes you a different person when you walk out of there. And, and that's, so I always, the one scene that always kind of like struck me was when she goes up to Havoc and she's here like, marry me, Alex, and doesn't even wait for him to say yes. You know, Beast, who's the worst sex man ever, we hate Beast, is like, ho, 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 <laughs> congratulations. But now hearing you talk, I get it. Polaris had lived through such an atrocity that yeah. getting married to her, you know, her old love, having a beautiful wedding she's clamoring for that yeah. happiness. She, yeah. she wants that stability. And then for nurse Annie to come in and take it away from her. I understand why she gets all savage. And but, she's a human too, on top yeah. of it. So, yeah. you know, we can blame Hank McCoy for, for Polaris's wedding day being destroyed. You absolutely can blame Hank for anything. you Fuck want. Hank McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> one, one question before I turn it back over to Flink. I I'm also a huge Wanda Stan. And obviously you wrote one of those first scenes where Wanda Pietro and Lorna all sit down and she kind of unveils like, yes, I am also a child of Magneto. When you were writing that scene, did you know a much larger story with Avengers Disassembled and House of M was on the horizon for Wanda, or were you just kind of given free play to to do what you wanted with the scar? I was I didn't know. Um, but you know, when Mike doesn't didn't object, sometimes it was because he knew stuff was coming and he wasn't telling me about it. So um uh so he might have known and approved it because it was it sort of led into that. Um, or you know. We may have talked about it and I don't remember, but I, I believe that that was just something that I had put in um, and that he was fine with. So it's just fortuitous. I think it was just fortuitous. Yeah. It was not anything that was planned that I remember, you know, but 20 years ago. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so you, you mentioned that uh, one of the characters you would have continued, like to continue writing, but didn't get the opportunity to because Alan Davis came in and, and snatched him up. Um, was Nightcrawler, but you did get to do, you know, have some fun with Nightcrawler and, and do a fairly big story for him, as we mentioned earlier. Um, it had sort of been a big question mark uh, who who his father was all of these years. We knew his mother was Mystique, 
Um, and you answer that question with, with Azazel. Um, how did you come up with the idea? What was your, your, your motivator there? Obviously it's got that, that soap opera angle, um, um, that we all love, but, uh, what were your thoughts on, on developing that character? Well, there were, um, there were sort of two things. I mean, I do a ridiculous amount of research and sometimes I don't always read it correctly. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I don't always um, get it, but I think I got this correct. I may be wrong, but Stephen Gould used to talk about um, how uh, evolution is not, it's not linear. It's not something that just you continue every, every generation is an improvement upon the last generation. He had, he, there was something that he called punctuated equilibrium where you'll go along and suddenly humankind will spit out all of these variations to see which one is successful. And the ones that are successful obviously continue on, but it's not, it's, it's a, it's a moment in time. And so I started thinking, well, if that's how it works, has it worked this way all along? And then maybe mutants came along and it didn't last. And so that got me thinking about there's the, the second thing that got me thinking about it was the book of Enoch, which is, which talks about, um, uh, it's a, it's a book, I think it's in the Bible or it's a book that was removed from the Bible, but it's about the, um, the angels coming down and mating with humans and creating these monstrous offspring. And so I thought, well, what if yeah, they're that's definitely not canon, <laughs> it's definitely not canon, but I thought, well, what if they're, and I think I remember talking to Mike about it and we were, this is sort of where we were planning on going with the nightcrawler arc was, um, that, and the Azazel arc is that, uh, Azazel is, is that, uh, is that first sort of punctuated equilibrium where all of these variations and mutants were sort of spit out. And he, at one point, his second in command makes a comment about, I can't believe I remember these words. This is why I questioned what the question, the, the gambit thing, because I don't remember that, but the, the second in command says um, he wears the garb of the angels. And that was supposed to harken back to the fact that there was a battle essentially between the angelic side and the demonic side. They called them the angelic side because they had wings, but they were really all just a bunch of mutants battling it out with each other. That they were the the sort of the child the, the the what's called the Nephilim, which is the children of the of the angel, the archangels that came down and made it with humans. So, um, and then what I figured happened is that the the original angels. Um, banished them to their nether dimension and that Azazel and his group not, didn't die, but they'd been trying to get out for some time. And so there were a, a number of other characters that had Nightcrawler's uh, um, teleportation ability. So I thought, what if we tie all of those together? And Azazel has been sort of doing this where he's found a way to get back for short periods of time, mate with humans so that he can create this portal and open it up and come back. And so that was supposed to be um, like the, that was, I don't know, my big house of M or something where the, the characters would come, the uh, Azazel's characters would come through that dimension and try to conquer earth. Um, so the, and the first part of that story is the one that we did where, uh, they're in Azazel's dimension trying to get out. Um, so that was the original concept behind that. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, not everything I did, I was in love with. So some of those things, I'm not sure were working as well as they could have. I don't know if, uh, we tipped we tipped it well enough or, um, or if we even should have done it. I mean, it's one of those things where people are always saying all the time, should you, should you have these other versions of Nightcrawler because that duplicate his powers? And um, the original idea was that circle that they form winds up killing them all. So um, I thought we were kind of getting rid of them and making Nightcrawler special again, but, uh, but I actually have the, a page from that story up there. The, the, where oh, nice. that's, oh, yeah. um, uh, that's Azazel and Mystique. Uh, getting it on in church <laughs> <laughs> as they would as they would 
I know, no, hearing your thought process on all of that uh, and knowing where you really wanted to take it. I, I wish, um, you know, Azazel, I think has only shown up one more, one more time since, uh, since you wrote him, but I kind of wish that we had gone more in the direction that you just described. That would be, uh, that sounds to me like a, like a, like a really interesting, interesting story. Um, and obviously he was at nothing like your, your take on the character, but Azazel did show up in live action um, in X-Men first class. How did you, how did you feel about that? Oh, it was weird. I didn't find out about it until I saw him in a preview and somebody said, well, who the heck is that guy? And, uh, um, I had, had no idea, but at some point said, Oh, that's, that's Azazel. That's the, he, he doesn't talk. He doesn't say anything. And I went, wait a minute, that's Azazel. He's a, but this was a series that's happening in 1962. And I went, okay, it's Marvel. It's Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> and it's whatever they want to do. It's their characters. The so. less you think about those X-Men movies and how they <laughs> gel together, especially in relation to the comics, the, 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 the better. Well, the and better. you would have thought they would have solved that like Azazel and Mystique get together. And that's so how you get Nightcrawler in the movies, but they don't even touch upon that. No. And I remember when the first class preview came out and you saw Jennifer Lawrence, oh no, Days of Future Past you saw jennifer lawrence in the hospital and i remember like breaking down the trailer and be like oh that's because it's going to start off with her giving birth to nightcrawler and her and azazel in the in the gap had gone together but they never did that they never covered it oh interesting nightcrawler yeah. never got thrown over a cliff oh my oh, god wow. we're obsessed with that scene wait did <laughs> you, do you remember when you the, the art where uh mystique does throw baby nightcrawler off the cliff you revisit that does he bamf away is that is that what happened in it i didn't i don't think i wrote that no he winds oh. up in the river because that's where they that's where he's found in a in a previous again yeah. time continuity yeah, um, I, I was just thinking of that scene because there was a bamf, but I don't know. I in my head, Ken, it was always that Azazel came and like saved him, like that you had, you know, inserted that piece. But yes, that's exactly oh, maybe. how it happened. In the I don't remember. Maybe that's possible. It could be. Yeah, you know what? That actually sounds right. <laughs> I, think, I think you may be right. You, you just read it. I'll give I'll not give in, you, in the artist murky. The the artist murky with it. Yeah. Do you know what scene I'm talking about? Like baby nightcrawler goes away, and then there's like a bamf effect um afterwards but i don't know if it's just because you know art artistic direction but anyways i'm sorry i digress oh that's okay so another another development you you id nightcrawler's dad um which was great because that was a a mystery check off the list but um something else that joe casey had done relatively uh relatively soon before you joined was uh had nightcrawler reveal that he was an ordained priest um, and then you came in and, and, and kind of undid that, which, by the way, I, I, I think was was the right thing to do. I kind of like Nightcrawler um, a, as a conflicted Christian and mutant superhero trying to like balance the duality of, of, of his life. But what was your thought process for for reversing that story that had only just kind of happened? Um, I I. Th- I don't remember clearly, but I think that was actually a request on from Marvel that, um, and they actually wanted me to just start it off, if I remember correctly, with him no longer a priest. But I said, no, let's try to tie it into the previous story where we actually give him a reason and a motivation to not to be not want to be a priest anymore. But um, the uh, I believe it. I mean, they wanted to get him back to the sort of the fun swashbuckler character who did have his occasional conflicts and difficulties, but not somebody who was an ordained priest. Yeah. Um, so uh, if I, that's, I, I'm pretty sure that that was something that they had asked for. 
I, I think that was absolutely the, the, the right thing to do. Uh, like I said, I just, the duality, the, the, the duality in his head, him sort of battling his, his double nature, it was, was always a much more interesting take on the character. Well, and speaking of dualities, another character that had so much duality was Iceman. Yeah. And, you know, in your run, the way I always read your run was that Bobby was still going through his sexuality. He was still in the closet. I mean, for me, the biggest innuendo was when Polaris was like, you don't sleep with someone like Bobby. You sort of endure him. So I'm, I'm, I was curious about your approach with Bobby. And did you draw upon past innuendos with his you know, speculation on his sexuality to, to write him? Yeah, actually, I wanted to deal with the um, sort of the sometimes conflicted nature that young men go through where they're, they're t- so terrified of how their families are going to respond that they don't admit to themselves what they're really feeling and what they're really going through. So that was, a, that was the intent. And eventually he and North Star uh, would have found a way to be together, at least yes. uh, probably, probably only temporarily, because I just I don't know if I saw them as long term partners, yeah. but um but that was that was kind of again. It's one of those places where you think you're going to go, but you never really get the chance or the opportunity to do it. Um, so, were were you? Because Iceman only came out during the Bendis on New X Men run. Did you ever speak with Mike? Who we we love Mike Martz here. Oh yeah, he's did awesome. You, did you ever have a chance to speak to him about a potential Iceman coming out story? And were you given the green light for that? No, it was something that was in my head, but because we, there was no opportunity coming up where we could deal with it that I never really brought up and talked to him about it. Um, It was also something that was potentially very controversial and I didn't want to bring it up until what I thought was the right time. Um, I mean, you know, we're talking 20 years ago and there were also people very angry about North Star. So uh, there were more people that loved him and more people that were excited about it. But you know, sometimes like with, with Shira, you just have to do the right thing. You know, it's, yeah. it, it's more about um, going in the right direction and going in a positive direction. I mean, I have uh, I have a, a cousin who got in touch with me because of Shira and Kipo in the Age of the Wonder Beasts and said, look, I, thank you. <laughs> you know, thank you for these characters. Um, you know, so to me, that's that's important. And that's something that you need to do. Um, I don't uh, it's. I don't pretend to be the guy who's necessarily the right one to write those stories, but at the time nobody else was doing it. So I thought I'll yeah. do it. And now you get somebody like James Tinian, he could probably write a much better story than I could, but. Um, oh, I would love a James Tinian Iceman story. We need to will that into, into existence. <laughs> but, but I mean, for, for, for readers like us, um, you know, we're, we're both gay men and, and at the time, you know, we didn't know for sure that, you know, Iceman was was in fact gay, but with the context, knowing that he is now, you look back on moments, you know, from a lot of different writers actually, but but certainly in your run, um, the Polaris relationship uh, between Bobby and uh, you know Bobby and Polaris always seemed kind of forced and awkward, and you know, even without it being overt, you know, Bobby is gay. I always kind of read some of those those scenes as uh, as 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 Bobby was maybe actually a little in love with Havoc, and I don't know if if that was your your intent or not, but um, you know that is sort of context that I can apply to it now that we know one hundred percent that that Bobby is gay. 
was, did you have any sort of, was that, was that what you intended? Or did I just put like a whole bunch of, of vibes on something that, that weren't there? No, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, 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 I was playing it. It's, again, a lot of this stuff is just based on continuity and, and previous comments and, yeah. and things that have been made in, in previous issues, including that great scene in the movie where his mom says, well, can't you just not be a mutant? Yeah, um, yeah. So um, so I, I wanted to play, maybe I was playing with that unconsciously, but I was not doing it consciously because for me, I mean, I'm such a romantic that when you sort of start the North Star story, you want to finish the North Star story. Sure. So I wasn't thinking as far as Alex yet, um, but uh you know, I don't know if I ever, if, not like it'll ever happen, but if I ever had a chance to write the X-Men, I, uh, maybe it'll be something that I'll play with us. We'll see. Well, we, we're, we're going to will that into existence. <laughs> right. they, do have a, they do have a line called uh, X-Men Legends where they bring back old writers to sort of, you know, tie up loose threads. So we'll, <laughs> really? will that. Wow. Jordan D. Okay. White. Jordan D. White, you heard it here. <laughs> um, Chuck, we, one final Iceman question, because one one scene that I, I loved, and maybe... I just, I still haven't been able to fully process it, but I wanted you to unpack it for me was in that last arc of yours, you know, Iceman, the, I think the last time you wrote Iceman, he's in a room in his bedroom, it's dark. And he's looking at a photo of him and Annie and also of him and Polaris. And I'm curious if you remember writing that scene and sort of what, what was going through Iceman's thoughts at that time. I don't remember writing that scene, so <laughs> I, would, I would only be guessing uh, as to what it was. But um, I mean, I think I don't, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember. <laughs> what the relate, I it's can't a, remember it is such Chuck. When I tell you the panel was like this big, <laughs> <laughs> when I tell you it was that big, like no one probably noticed it. I and, didn't. Yeah, and, and, and if he, if Flink did not notice it, it's because I'm crazy. But it was just a very tender scene. And and speaking to you now, I can I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but I can sort of surmise he's coming to terms with who he is and sort of these past people that he's had relationships with, and and sort of all that hate that's come at him and him coming to terms with who he is. If I ever put in a moment where a character was sort of silently looking at something, it was always to convey some kind of underlying emotion. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think you're right in that. That's what I was attempting to do, but I don't know. Uh, I, I can't, I can't, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So we, we, we did touch on, on Juggernaut um, quite a bit earlier, um, but something that uh, we, we didn't mention was, was the trial of, of Juggernaut. And oh, yeah. it, it can be, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, that's okay, but more than just the controversial moment, of course, um, it is fairly uncommon in superhero comics to actually see um, heroes or villains be be held accountable for for their actions in a court of law. What made you want to put Kane on trial? Was it just more of an effort to legitimize him, like you were like you were speaking about earlier, or was it just a, an opportunity to write, you know, a different kind of superhero story? It was um, it was an attempt to show that he was. Um, I mean, there were there were a couple of reasons for it. Well, one. Um, I asked Ron Garney one day what he wanted to draw. He doesn't remember this, but it, it's true. Um, he, he, I asked Ron Garney what he wanted to draw. And he said, I want to draw 
She-Hulk and Juggernaut in bed after they've had the greatest sex ever. And yes! I went, okay, I'll write that scene. <laughs> Fantastic. So it's Ron so, Garney's fault. We'll, we'll send uh, the internet trolls after Ron Garney. Yes. And yeah, if there are trolls about that, have, have <laughs> trolls go after Ron. I want that um, to happen on She-Hulk. Bring in Kane and let her find, let her find Kane. Well, for me, it was the, the idea that these were two characters who had issues. I mean, you know, sleeping with your lawyer is a terrible, terrible idea. Terrible idea. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, you know, the, and, and I think that's one of the things is there are a lot, if, if people are upset about it, a lot of times they're upset about what you would sort of take the logical conclusion to be, not recognizing that people in moments of passion will do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've done things that I was embarrassed about at the time. I've known other people who have done unbelievable things that they're embarrassed about and got caught doing. So the idea that these, that their passions can kind of get out of control was a big part of, uh, of, of that for me, but it was also this idea that juggernaut was sort of driven by his passions and not really thinking about the consequences of his actions. So yeah. here he has to face the consequences of all of his actions. And she's, I mean, there's a, I think if I remember, there's a two page spread where he's strapped up and she's reading off this litany of things that he's done and the crimes that he's committed. And in the middle somewhere, he says, I paid for that. It's like, there's a bar that gets wrecked or something. And he talks about, I paid for that. So there's, there's like the, that one moment where he's trying to say, look, I, you know, I, I try, I do my best. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I am a bit of a passionate guy. And that was a big part of his arc and his storyline was kind of learning that you in the real world, you, you, if you want to be a better person, you have to kind of control that stuff. Everybody has those passions and those feelings, but you can't always act on them. You can't just go with. It. And so that again, leading into the J2 stuff where he becomes a responsible father married to a lawyer. Yeah. So see, That's I did it. read J2. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do a read of it on this podcast. Cause it's so I much know. fun. Is it? I, I, I was the art was we were talking. It looks amazing. And am I, am I remembering correctly? Did Ron Garney do the art for J2? I feel like he was oh. heavily involved in that universe at some point. I might just be making stuff up, but yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't, yeah, know. I don't know for sure either. I, I might just be making things up. Internet don't come for me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so, so that, um, what you were talking about, uh, of Kane sleeping with his lawyer and how that's like a moment of passion does that kind of parallel what was going on with what you were saying earlier about Angel and Husk? It, that, it, it sort of, that he had that passion and there were going to be consequences for that later on. Yeah. Sometimes you do things that, you know, they feel right in the moment and they're, you know, they're, they're mistakes or they're, or sometimes they're not mistakes, but everybody else kind of needs to settle down about it. Um, uh, it, but it, for me, again, it's, it's, it's writing a story, it's writing conflict into a story and setting up conflict for later in the story. So the fact that She-Hulk sleeps with Juggernaut was going to have consequences. And the fact that She-Hulk had issues of her own, I mean, I think at the time she was sort of dealing with kind of the multiple personality thing or, or some, kind of a, some kind of a personality conflict about, you know, being She-Hulk and being a lawyer and remembering stuff. And um, so she does something that she really shouldn't do either. And she knows better than to do. Um, so and, and for me, I love setting up those moments where people do what feels good in the moment and it winds up biting them in the ass somehow. So, um, you know, even if it's, even if it's putting a magneto helmet on and destroying a, you know, the entire wedding venue. So, uh, 
Oops. Um, Oops. <laughs> it's okay. It's Popo. It's Popo. Oh my gosh. Well, so, I mean, speaking, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, uh, about Paige, what, what was it that made you want to, you know, there's a million, there's a million mutants in the, in the Marvel universe. What, what made you want to promote Paige specifically to the big leagues? Cause to that point she had only appeared in generation X and she was kind of supporting in that uh, as well. She was, I wouldn't say that she was really one of the leads. She was kind of secondary in that. And you automatically, as soon as that book ends, kind of thrust her into the big leagues. Yeah. She, um, it wasn't my intent. And again, she was one of those characters that they asked me to put in and oh, good. she was not a character that I was familiar with. And, and I wound up kind of falling in love with her a little bit. She was terrific character so much personality and there was, but there was really honestly one question that I asked Mike that he didn't have an answer for. And I thought, Oh my God, how do we not know this? I have to write a story about it. And this is, Oh, here we go. This is uh, um, for you day spring. This is another story that I didn't um, didn't do, uh, but I really, really wanted to. Um, I, I asked Mike, I said, so what happens to these skins after she sheds them? And Mike just kind of looked at me with this blank expression on his face and kind of shrugged. He didn't know. And I said, what if there's a guy that follows her around and collects them? Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I, so at that point, I wanted to do that particular story. And that was going to be the, the sort of the Sam story is like, he's trying to, to get to her to rescue. Uh, 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 Lauren is trying to get to her to rescue her. And, and Sam is pissed off and beating the crap out of Warren about what happened. And, and, and the only way that Warren can get out of it is he just, he just lets him, he says, you're right. I, I shouldn't have done it. Not in front of your mom. It was a mistake. And he just, and Sam just keeps beating the crap out of him until finally he stops. And he says, now will you help me to get your sister? And it's like, Sam goes, what? Cause he hadn't, he wouldn't stop long enough. Again, people acting in moments of passion. So, yeah. so that story was that, uh, that there's this guy that's collecting her skins, you know, very much like some kind of weird Buffalo Bill character. Or Buffalo Bob, but what, which one is it from uh, Silence of the Lambs? Buffalo, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo no, Bill. I think it's Bill. You're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, so, and he's just, he's got all of these weird skins pinned up in his apartment and he finally decides that he wants her to start making unique skins for him. So he kidnaps her. So that's the, that's And the then it's unveiled that was Nurse Annie's first <laughs> 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 It all comes back the to nurse the Nurse Annie questions are coming. The Nurse Annie it's, questions are coming. You set up the seeds and you plant, <laughs> you, the plant grows oh by the gosh. <laughs> well, before we dive into Nurse Annie, I do want to circle back a little bit to, to Generation X because it does seem like you you incorporated, uh, I mean, Jubilee was a part of your run. Uh, Husk, I think yeah. Monet may have even showed up at one point as well. Um, maybe. So were, were you, uh, you were unfamiliar with the character of Husk before. I mean, I'm sure you were aware, aware of Jubilee, but did you, did you go back and read any of Generation X to, to oh, yeah. prepare to write these characters? Oh, sure. Yeah. That's where I came up with the question of where do her skins go? Cause she kept, you know, yeah. every time she'd throw off these skins and go off in battle and I never saw what happened to the skins. And so yeah. I asked Mike one day, so yeah. Oh yeah. I read them. Yeah. Were, were you a fan? Did you enjoy them? Uh, yeah, I was. I, there, there are other books that I like better, but I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, I enjoyed the characters. I think the, and I think that's always the strength of any series is its characters and their interaction, their relationships. Yeah, so absolutely. We got to ask though about the Generation X kids. You crucified them on the mansion lawn, yeah. and thankfully, Jean Grey telekinetically brought them down and rushed them to the infirmary. So. 
can, can you tell us i know i'm sorry for like no, but, it's fine. but but can you can you what was your decision process like for for that it was a very harrowing scene and obviously one that's has stuck with readers 20 yeah. some years later later um that was actually born of the original thought for the first movie was going to be that it was based on god loves god loves man kills so they were looking for some sort of quasi religious theme to books that were going to be on the shelves when the movie was out. Wow. And they also wanted to get rid of characters whose powers duplicated other more famous characters in the universe. So skin uh, characters like that. So it was kind of a double thing where um, I said, okay, I've got this image in my head and they said, run with it. So that was where, where we went with it in retrospect. I probably would have handled it differently. And I always regret uh, getting Angelo's name wrong, but that's, you know, that's, my mind works in tangents and I'm a Mad Magazine fan. So Angelo Torres is a very famous uh, artist who I used to emulate when I was younger. And Angelo Esposito is obviously Skin's name. So I got it wrong, but it got through two readouts at, at Marvel. So I wasn't the only one responsible yeah, for it. But, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to kill a character, you want to get his name right. Um, so, uh, and, and I, it's, I mean, it's a very famous quote. It's almost as famous as, you know, if there's a gun on the table in the first act, it better be fired by the third. The uh, if don't kill a character off screen, especially a character that people love. So um, the fact that all these characters were killed and executed and just sort of left on the lawn was a great shock moment, but it was not a particularly strong story moment. Um, so that's where I'm saying that sometimes I'm not always satisfied with the stuff. When I look back at it, I think it could have been better, but you know, you're dealing with, 22 pages at that point, I think it was 22 pages a month and you're trying to get in as much as possible. So sometimes you go for, as, uh, as Stephen King says, sometimes you go for the gross out moment over the suspense. So. Yeah. And I mean, it still was, a you know, even though a lot of it happened off, off panel, it was still a very impactful scene. You know, I, I am one of the aforementioned skin fans, so I was devastated by it, but at the same time, I also understand, you know, I never got mad about it because Comics are comics, and, and he's back. He's back. It did take a little of bit longer, <laughs> but um, he is finally back. So I, I know nothing is. It, I, it, you just can't take it personal because nothing is permanent in, in yeah. X Men comics. So yeah, yeah and we yeah. had Augustine Rodriguez who did uh, skin in the Generation X movie on the podcast, and he, he he loved the character, and the character still resonates with 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 the people today. I think that's I think that's really important too. I think you know when uh, the last show that I worked on it at, at DreamWorks was How to Train Your Dragon, and the idea that we had a diverse cast was amazing. That we could that each that all of these kids from different worlds they didn't have to be Norwegian and white to have a dragon, and uh, so I think that's I think that's really important. I think that um, uh, you know any little kid growing up out there should have a hero of their own and we you know going looking back on it now i think that we were all too eager sometimes to kill off characters not realizing that they were somebody's favorite and uh um, everybody should have a favorite and they should be allowed to have a favorite and i'm and, and I, honestly i'm glad they brought skin back uh, i think we, that, we still need more of him we still need more panel time <laughs> with skin but he is at least he is alive good Good. Glad so, Chuck, we're going to enter the Oprah section oh, okay. of the interview right now. You want to know about my feelings or you're going to make me cry? No, even better. We're oh, going to okay. ask about the creation of Nurse Annie. Oh, How okay. did Nurse Annie come to be? How did um, you conjure up this nurse goddess? 
<laughs> um, there was so much um, about the X-Men that was isolationist that they, they have this school that is in a sense discriminating against um, people without mutant powers by not having uh, humans there. And I, you know, and it's the same, it's the thing where you can say, you have to kind of, you have to, you have to balance it in one direction to, to uh, offset the, the, the mistakes that other people are making in the rest of the world. But it also, it can make it for a very exclusionary experience. And in some ways it's kind of like what's going on now with a lot of the, 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 the sort of the conservative push to change um, the meaning of the civil war. And, you know, that you're, that different people are learning different things about different cultures from a skewed perspective and in ways that I think are, are going to wind up being harmful to the kids as they're growing up because they're, you know, I mean, imagine getting older and you're writing, you're thinking of things or doing things based on a, a, a misperception of the, of the reality of the world out there. So Part in at that time, 20 years ago, what I was looking to do was, um, you know, Xavier uh, looking at her and saying, look, you know, we get injured all the time. We need somebody to help take care of people. Let's bring her in. And he was also at the time thinking of, uh, and you know, seeing who she was and recognizing that she was basically a good person. And the fact that I was raised by a single mother, um, with, it was something that I wanted to kind of deal with this idea that a woman could be strong on her own, even though she, she may want love and she may want the things that she was hoping to get for with Alex. That wasn't her be all and end all. Mostly it was just earning a living and being a good mother. And that mothering quality is something that I kind of wanted to bring into the X-Men. They had a father. Um, but I thought that I felt that they needed a mother as well. And, uh, so that was the thinking originally. I loved the the I loved her as a personality. I loved the fact that she was strong and weak at the same time. That she had, you know, uh, uh, um, she had her love for Alex, but she was also willing to sort of back off and and accept that he was going to get married to somebody else, and they, you know that they had loved each other for a long time. And um, and Polaris may have gotten a little nuts on her, but at the same time, she sort of understood, you know, where that was yeah. coming from. So. Um, well, so she has I, that scene when Xavier goes into Polaris's head and sees everything that happened to Genosha. And then the last scene is Nurse Annie under the table, like you know, in, in, yeah. in terror after yeah. reliving Lorna's memories. And that's another aspect of it, too, is, is humans, in order to, for, the, for mutants to become a part of the bigger world, humans have to understand them better. Yeah. So now Annie is going to be one of those people who gets it. And originally when she left, she was going to kind of take that out into the world with her along with her son. So, um, so that was the original thinking. Again, a viewpoint character um, who brought something to the mix that wasn't really there before that I really wanted as a part of the series. And, um, and they were willing to let me do it. But God, people hated her so much. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm a huge Sailor Neptune fan who has like aqua blue hair. So seeing Nurse Annie in the comics at the time, I gravitated towards her. So, but yes, there there was a lot of, <laughs> there still is Nurse Annie hate. Yeah. Which I don't really, I, you know, I don't feel, I, hearing you talk about her and her development and you wanting to develop a sort of a mother character for the X-Men because they already had a father. I, I actually really like that angle. I was kind of indifferent to the character before. I'm kind of walking away from this, liking her maybe uh, a, a little bit more. But I will say, I always 
thought she was a very brave character because she stuck around for all of the X-Men shenanigans and she went through all of the relationships so proper with with Alex and 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 she she stuck it out for for a, a, as long as she could. So even, you know, with my at the time indifference to her, I still recognized, you know, the 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 importance of her and that she was, you know, a brave character. I think you really got that um across, but yeah, she isn't a character that we have actually seen a whole lot of, or I don't think we've seen her really at, at, at all um, since since your run. But we do have; she did have a fairly memorable exit for those of us um, who are fans of your run. The um, the last we saw them as they're as they're leaving the mansion, um, we 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 saw a pair of eyes floating uh, in one of the one of the panels there. Who is who is that supposed to be? I feel like. Um, over the years, we've all sort of ex- thought that it was Cassandra Nova, but was that what, what you intended? Uh, it was actually what I intended. And she would, she had been drawn in there fully. There wasn't just the eyes. They sort of, uh, they thought about it more after they got it and, and, and took out the rest, most of the rest what of her. Bummer. The but um, that was, that was, it, it's funny because she was not there originally. Originally Carter was in the back um, uh, sort of, air juggling uh, metallic objects. The idea being that he had um, Magneto's powers and that, um, or, you know, uh, some, something in that area, something in that direction. And um, Mike and I talked about it and he said, well, you know, we want to, we want to kind of bring Cassandra Nova back at some point because she's such a great villain. How about if we, instead of doing that, we have Carter sitting on one side and Cassandra Nova as a kind of a ghost is sitting next to him. And I said, look, they're your characters. <laughs> I'm leaving the book. You can do whatever you want. And uh, he said, yeah, let's do that. So um, I saw the artwork. I think it was Sal, Sal that drew that. And Sal yep. had put her fully in, in the seat. And she was sitting there with this really evil, sinister smile looking right at Carter. And, uh, and then when the book came out, it was just, uh, just the eyes. So I think, you know, it was just a, it's just that thought process. Everybody's second guessing themselves and trying to figure out what, how to do it. And I think that's, so, so that was a goodbye scene from you as a writer. That wasn't uh, a story that just never came into fruition. You purposely ended it on that note for another writer who I believe was Peter Milligan to, to come up and take, or Chris Claremont who did uncanny. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought people hated Annie so much. That they were just going to, she'd just be gone and they'd leave her alone and that Carter would never be seen again. Um, so yeah, I thought that was basically me saying, okay, I'm done. If, you know, if you guys want to do something else with her, great. Um, that's like the, um, when I did the new Captain Britain in, in uh, the Avengers, uh, I really, there's another character who was a single mother that I really liked a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, then once you're gone, nobody else likes them. So nobody else wants to use them and they just kind of fall into obscurity. So that's what I expected to happen with Annie. Well, I, since now, now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, Annie did actually show up. Claremont actually used Annie. I'm not sure if you've read it, but he did X-Men The End, yeah. um, which was like, you know, the last X-Men story. And Havoc actually ended up, Claremont wrote Havoc. His happy ending oh. was, nurse, was with Nurse Annie and oh. Carter. In some kind of like, like Carter created like a space for them. Like they were dead, but they were living across from the mansion. I forgot how the story went. Oh, yeah, wow. I don't remember the details. It, it wasn't, you know, Claremont's finest story. It was a little all over the place, but it was, it was their nurse Annie and Carter did actually show up again. I'm just, oh. just came to me. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, nice, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> okay. So our final questions are about Zorn. 
And okay. obviously you brought in a second Zorn and I'm still confused about him. And I'm curious how editorially that he was explained to you because he was Magneto and then he was someone else posing as Magneto. And then he became the collective later on. So how was, how was Zorn explained to you when um, you were uh, crafting your own version of the character? Grant wasn't, sharing initially i think what plans were for zorn it was it was and i think that's some of the reason that there's this sense of um who is he he was always magneto or was he or was he not um because i'm not sure grant fully follow through with that and this actually came out of the, the genosha story where i had um wolverine pissing on the statue um because um mike and I talked about it and he said, well, you know, one, you know, something else that people always want to see is, you know, a great funeral. So let's have all of the mutants show up on Genosha to have a funeral for Magneto. And I, and my conversation with, with Mike was wound up big parts of it wound up being the conversation between Xavier and Wolverine, where I was saying, you know, what, do you know what, what Grant did is turned uh, Magneto into Osama bin Laden. He killed all of these people, he flipped the bridge, he did all of this crazy stuff. People died left and right. That's horrific. And um, and Mike and I talked about it back and forth. And he said, you know, I don't know if I don't know if we can do that. So um, I, it, it hadn't, you know, because so much of the the death in that was sort of, you know, distant and and from far away. You didn't see a lot of like dead bodies crushed and stuff the way that they were described to be. Um, I don't think it quite sunk in. So Mike. Um, Mike, uh, uh, said, uh, um, well, let me, let me, let me, let's discuss this and, and we'll get back to you. So the decision was to take Zorn back the other way and make it so that he was never really Magneto. He was Zorn. He said, how would you do that? And I said, well, Zorn is supposed to have a star for a brain. Maybe we have, he has a twin brother that's got a black hole for a brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's kind of, that's kind of what we did. And, um, uh, so that way Zorn was actually the, the, the mass murderer who killed all of those people. Um, so and Jean Grey and Jean Grey, <laughs> um, he just did horrible, horrible stuff. So we could uh, never forgive Magneto if it was him killing Jean Grey, but Zorn, some okay. of us could. Yeah. And I, yeah. Eject, 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 <laughs> eject my co-host. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of black hole brains, our last question for, for this interview and thank you so much for for going as long as you have where we can hours. we can start rambling uh <laughs> when we get excited but what did you intend to happen to the brotherhood uh when zorn sucked them into his his black hole brain did you have an idea of where a cool direction where that could go or you were kind of on your way out at that point and that was just a seed for someone to deal with later that was just a seed for someone else to deal with later i had no thought of them how they, anybody else would get him back so I honestly can't even remember how it, how they came back. I, I it's I think they were just kind of just back. I don't really I don't really remember. So yeah. I'm sure you would have written a really great story about it, but uh, whoever <laughs> whoever picked up that, that plot point did not did not do a great job, I guess, because it's not memorable. Chuck <laughs> Austin, we have been speaking to you for two hours. Oh my god! Wow. I we're sorry for for keeping you. It, are there any upcoming projects that you're working on that folks at home should be aware of? Let's put it on the radar. What do you have coming down the pipeline? Um, 
I, nothing that I am contractually allowed to talk about. <laughs> uh, hey, that, that in itself is very exciting to hear. Yeah, that's uh, it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things coming. Um, and the Edge World trade is out. And that's, uh, but I mean, the fact is that I haven't been doing comics for a really long time. And, and Edge World was sort of my first step back into it. And that's led to other things. So um, I'm grateful. I'm enjoying it. I'm having a lot of fun writing comics again. Um, but um uh, but yeah, I can't really talk about anything that I'm doing at the moment. It's fair. It's okay. fair. And well, for- we'll just we're just gonna say that we're 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 glad that you're back doing comics. That you were away you were away for too long. Oh, that's yeah. very kind of you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Where where can listeners at home who now love Nurse Annie engage <laughs> with you and let you know their love about Nurse Annie? Are you on any socials anywhere? Uh, I am. I mean, uh, uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook for. Um, uh, basically to, for, you know, business reasons for the most part. So it's not really, it's not really, um, so much a personal, uh, site as it is me just getting on there and talking about the business, you know, primarily animation, because that's what I work in most now. And I want to give a big shout out to Chad from Gray Malkin podcast, because we're going to be on a future episode and that's how we sort of connected. So Chad, such a wonderful show. Everyone go check out Gray Malkin Lane. We're going to be on it and Chuck's going to be on it. And it's going to be a fun, fun, fun time. It will be. Absolutely. If, if you guys are going to be there, it'll be a blast. So thanks so much for <laughs> making the time. It'll be two more hours. Um, 